Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed uh, to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you join me now in prayer? Let's pray together. And Father, now as we come before you asking for your grace to be upon us once again as we sit at your feet, oh Lord, we come before you humbly asking that you would speak once again, that you would grant us wisdom from above, wisdom that does not originate in the creative imaginations of mankind, but only from the extreme, powerful, celestial revelation that comes at your throne. Father, we thank you that we are not left to ourselves having to figure out how to make sense of this chaotic and confusing life, but that you guide us with the light of Scripture and that you interpret it for us through the power of your Spirit. Father, many of us are in a season where instead of joy and thanksgiving, we find ourselves troubled, overwhelmed, insecure, and doubtful. Oh, Lord, would you alleviate and quiet whatever voices that are distracting us from being attentive right now and instead help us to be fully present and attentive to your holy word today. Oh, Father, would you please bless this message in spite of its messenger, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, guys, so every Christmas we're told, we're implored through song to be joyful, right? We hear that powerful Christmas ballad every year, right? Joy to the world, for the Lord has come. This is the season for us to be Joyful, right? Christmas cheer, they sometimes refer to it as. And the question that I want to raise is, why? Why are we to be so joyful this time of year? What is it about Christmas? What is it about the story of God coming in the form of a baby in that small little town known as Bethlehem to where we are to be so joyful? We're finishing today our Christmas or Advent sermon series that we started two weeks ago entitled, Why Joy? Why joy? And the purpose of this series was to look at some biblical reasons as to why we are commanded by God to be joyful in light of Christmas. And today, we're going to see one of the biggest reasons why we should be so joyful. And it all centers on this idea, this term known as Emmanuel. Emmanuel, it's a word that we hear very often this time of year. It literally means God with us. According to Scripture... One of the biggest reasons why we should be so joyful in light of this being Christmas is because God is with 
us. And to explore and to extract what this fully means, we're going to take a look at two very prominent chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first chapter of Matthew's Gospel, starting in verses 18 to 23, and the very last chapter of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. And so with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about the context that God has come to us, the context that God has come to us. The second, the need to have God be with us. The need to have God be with us. And finally, the joy we now have because God is with us. The context that God came to be with us, the need to have God be with us, and finally, the joy we now have because God is with us. Okay? Let's jump right in. The context that God came to be with us. Now, this idea of God promising to be with his people where God says to them, I am with you. You can actually see this scattered all throughout the Bible. If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you see God promising his people over and over, I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. For example, Genesis 28, God says these words to the patriarch Abraham, I am with you and will watch over you and wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Joshua chapter 3, verse 7, God says this to Joshua. And the Lord said to Joshua, today I will bring... Excuse me, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Fast forward a thousand years. God says these comforting words to his people Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. I will make you a wall to this people, a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you. To rescue and save you, declares the Lord. And even in our own passage, Matthew says, or quotes in chapter 1, verse 23, of God being with us by identifying this phrase, Emmanuel. This phrase is actually not original to Matthew. You notice there are quotation marks around that verse. And that tells us that Matthew is quoting another instance in the Bible where he promises to be with his people. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where the prophet Isaiah made this prophecy originally over half a millennia ago. Okay, So we see all throughout the Bible this common recurring phrase and promise that God makes to his people that I am with you, I am with you, I am with you. Now, with all this repetitive recurrence going on over and over where God promises to be with his people, you may be wondering, well, what's so special then about this particular instance where God promises to be with us in the Christmas story that sets it apart, that makes it unique, that makes it different than any other Bible story where he promises to be with his people. And the answer is it's very different. It's very special. It's very unique. And it's very set apart. And here's why. If you read the context of these other stories where God promises to be with his people, they all have one common idea, one common context that they all share. And that context is an external threat. An external threat. In other words, whenever God promised to be with his people in those other Bible stories where he's saying, I am with you, he's trying to assure them that some external threat, whether it be a threatening army trying to invade it, whether it be a rebellious group of people trying to overthrow the people of Israel, or whether it's some uncertain future filled with certain unknown dangers... God is always saying, I am with you. I am with you. Do not fear because of something outside of you coming against you because I am with you. But when you come to Matthew chapter 1, the context is very, very different because the threat that God is trying to ease us from fearing is not an external threat, but actually it's an internal 
threat, a threat that is within us. That is the threat that Jesus is trying to ease, that God is trying to ease us from fearing. And in fact, that is why Jesus came initially to come on Christmas Day. And in order to understand and to fully see what this internal threat actually is, you have to focus on the character of Joseph and Mary. You see, Joseph and Mary are not just the central story characters of the Christmas story. Joseph and Mary also symbolize this internal threat that you and I and every other person that walks on this earth constantly have to deal with. Let me explain what I mean by asking you this question. Have you ever wondered, as you heard the Christmas story before, why God chooses to come into the world the way he does? I mean, God is all-powerful. He's capable of anything, and he had limitless ways of coming into the world Right? As Jesus, why does he choose to come into the world the way he did? Which is basically, why does he come in such a scandalous way? Why does he come to cause such a scandal? Because think with me for a moment and try to ignore the fact that we're reading the Christmas story. Okay, What's going on in Matthew 1? You have a young couple, Joseph and Mary, who are betrothed to be married. Now, what does it mean to be betrothed? In the ancient world, they had this set up to where you could be legally married to someone, but you were not allowed to have sex with them. Okay, that's what it meant to be betrothed to them. You were legally married, but you could not consummate the wedding. You were not allowed to have sex. And later on, as the story progresses, this young woman, Mary, right, ends up becoming pregnant. And Joseph is not the daddy, okay? He's betrothed. So that means he's not allowed to have sex with her. Friends, that's a scandal, right? Am I right? I mean, it, even if something like this happened today with all of our sexual liberal ideologies rummaging around in our culture, this would still be scandalous if this went on today. How much more in the ancient world? So with all that in mind, I ask you again, why would God choose to come in the world in such a way as to cause scandal? Well, we begin to figure out the answer when we read verse 20. So let's read it again. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here we read that Joseph was struggling with fear. Joseph was terrified. And you might be wondering, what was Joseph so scared about? Well, the text actually tells us through the words of the angel. What does the angel say? He says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Turns out, Joseph was not fully ready to divorce Mary. He wasn't fully ready to go all in and to actually follow through in actually divorcing her. And this is verified from the fact that we read at the beginning of verse 20 where it says, as he was considering, as he was considering these things. When you're considering something, that means you have not yet made a final decision. That's why you're still considering it. Which tells us that there's a part of Joseph that actually still wanted to marry this girl. And yet there was something about her, something about Mary, that kept him from actually executing and following through with that decision. Something that terrified him. Something about Mary that scared him so much that he was hesitating, that he was still considering. He was still unsure. Here's the question. What is it about Mary that scared him so much in terms of marrying her? Well, the best way to understand that or the best way to answer that question is first looking at how the Bible understands marriage. You know, the Bible gives us many different reasons as to why we should pursue marriage. So we can experience sexual intimacy, so we can experience powerful friendship, so that we can have children, so that we can be a blessing to the world by the example of our marriage. But the Bible gives us one prominent, one ultimate reason why we should pursue marriage as Christians. And that reason is, is so that 
our spouse can help us grow closer to God and vice versa. The Bible tells us that the biggest reason, the prominent reason, the most important reason why we should marry someone is so that we can help our spouse grow closer to God and our spouse can help us grow closer to God. Listen to how one Old Testament scholar by the name of Tremper Longman puts it. He says this, quote, The goal of marriage is to grow relationship and to grow character. But both goals are in service to the greatest goal, making God known. Marriage is a foretaste, an hors d'oeuvre of what will one day be our ultimate joy, being with God in intimate relationship forever. Marriage is meant to be a space where the most holy and intimate God shows himself as compelling and good. Joseph was terrified of marrying Mary because he was terrified of not experiencing what this man is talking about here. In other words, Joseph was afraid that by gaining Mary as a wife, he would end up losing God as his God. Our passage tells us that Joseph was a just man. That's simply the Bible's way of saying that he was a devout, devout man. He was a man of faith. He was a man who loved God. He loved obeying God. He was a man of the law, right? And he worshiped the lawgiver. He worshiped Yahweh. He worshiped God. And he looked forward to where his marriage would help him become more just, more righteous, more holy, more devoted to God. Because that's how he anticipated his wife would help him be and vice versa. How he would help his wife grow in piety and faith as well. But when Mary informed him that she was pregnant and he knew he wasn't the daddy, all of that hope was shattered. Or so he thought. Why? Because Joseph had an assumption that is still very much held by so many people in the church today. And that assumption is this. God will never be with someone who has issues. God will never be with someone who has problems. God will never be with someone who has sin in their life. In other words, God will never be with someone like Mary. Now, on the one hand, there is some truth to this assumption that Joseph has because the Bible makes it clear. God is holy, and he cannot tolerate sin, and he does not associate with sin. He doesn't associate with sinful people, unholy people. Or if I could put it this way, because God is holy, he will never be Emmanuel with sinners. He will never be God with us, us being people who are unholy, people who are unlike him. That's the assumption of Joseph. Here's the problem with that assumption. Listen to what the angel says to Joseph in verses 21 and 23. She, Mary, will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And then call his name, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Did you see what the angel just did? The angel just combined two ideas that Joseph would always keep apart. The first idea being, verse 21, sinful people. And the other idea, verse 23, Emmanuel. God with us. Here we begin to see why God chose to come into the world the way he did. Why he chose to cause such a ruckus, cause such a scandal. Because he wants to challenge the assumption that Joseph and so many of us have. Namely, God would never be Emmanuel with messed up, perverted, broken, incompetent, failing sinners like you and I. But it turns out, according to our passage... He actually would. He is willing to be Emmanuel with sinners like you and I. In fact, that is the whole message of Christmas. If you want to know what the message of Christmas is in a nutshell, is that God is willing to be with those 
who are completely contrary to who he is. He, the Holy One, is willing to dwell. He's willing to tabernacle. He's willing to be present. He's willing to come alongside of broken, wounded, failing sinners. Now, the question that comes up in this kind of understanding is, how is this possible? How can a holy God who is morally pure, morally upright, and must live in accordance to who he is by his nature, which is a holy God, how can he associate and live in peace and dwell among sinners when his holiness demands that he would smite down, destroy, condemn, and judge those who are not holy like he is? Because scripture clearly says that if you are not holy, you come under judgment, you come under death, you come under condemnation. How in the world can a holy God dwell in peace, dwell in intimacy, dwell in love with sinners like this? That's a great question, and I'm going to answer that in my last point. But I first want to dwell on this beautiful idea that God is willing to be Emmanuel with broken, messed up sinners like you and me. Because whether you believe it or not, this idea of God being Emmanuel, that's great news for all of us, for all of us. And when I say us, I don't just mean those of us who are Christians in this room. This is good news for everyone, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian. And to explain why... Let me go to my next point, which is the need to have God with us. Consider again the words of the angel in verse 21, which reads this. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now, that is so interesting. Look at how the angel describes what Jesus is going to do for his people. What is he going to do for his people? He is going to save his people from what? Their sins. Notice what the angel does not say. The angel does not say that he is going to save his people from the consequences of their sins or the repercussions of their sins. No, he says Jesus is going to save his people from their sins itself. And this is so important for us to recognize because for many of us, we think that the reason why we should avoid sin is because we want to avoid the consequences of our sins. Namely, God's punishment, God's wrath. God's judgment. In other words, we see sin as being bad for us, not because we see the sin itself as being bad, but we see the consequences of sin being bad. Namely, we're going to be punished for all eternity in a place called hell. Or let me put it this way. For many of us, we see sin like a hot chocolate fudge sundae. And what I mean by that is when we look at a hot chocolate fudge sundae, we don't see the sundae itself as being bad, but we see the consequences of eating it as being bad, namely high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and a fatty liver, right? Many of us see sin as being bad, not because we see the sin itself as bad, but the consequences, the repercussions that come out of indulging in that sin. But here in our passage in Matthew 1, that's not how the angel See sin. In fact, that's not how the Bible understands sin. No, the Bible tells us that sin itself, not the consequences, not the, not the ramifications that come out of it, but sin itself is so bad that we need to be saved from sin itself, not the consequences, not the fallout, but sin itself. Now, you're probably wondering, Pastor John, what is it about sin that's so bad? Why would the Bible say that sin itself rather than the the, the consequence of sin being so bad? Well, in order to answer that question, I have to give you a little bit of a brief grammar lesson. Now, I know you guys just got out of school. You're done with the semester. Like, oh, my gosh, I didn't come to church to get a grammar lesson. But actually, just doing a little bit of grammar in this passage will give us some insight. And it all centers 
on this word there, in that phrase. He will save them from their sin. That word there in the Greek is written in what is known as the Greek genitive case. The Greek genitive case. And if you ever study New Testament Greek grammar, it'll, you will know that the genitive case is used to convey something that is unique, something that is exclusive, something that is unrepeatable, something that belongs to something or someone uniquely and does not belong to anyone else. Now, when you understand that, you begin to understand what the angel is trying to teach us here when he says that Jesus saves us from their sins, their personal, unique sin. Let me explain. The Bible tells us that when a person sins, their particular sins are unlike anyone else's sins. They're unique. And one of the ways that our personal sins are unique to us is that our personal sin does something to us that no one else's sins do to us. Let me say that again. Our personal sin does something to us that no one else's sin does to us. Let me give you an illustration so you can have a better idea because I know it sounds kind of philosophical. Let's imagine a happily married man, a man who's been married for 14 years, happily married, finds out that his wife has been cheating on him for four years with a coworker. This man has now experienced the sin of adultery, and he's crushed. He's angry. He's depressed. He's lonely, and he is wounded. Now let's kind of change up the story a bit. Let's say the same happily married man ends up cheating on his wife for four years with a coworker. And you think, how can a happily married man cheat on his wife? Uh, it happens. In a moment of weakness, in a moment of opportunity, in a moment of stress, in a moment of stupidity, many happily married men have destroyed their marriages. Oh, yes, I have witnessed it personally myself. And so let's imagine this man doing this thing. This man has also experienced the sin of adultery, but the experience is going to be much different. He will be hurting. He will be angry. He will be lonely. He will be depressed. But the way he's going to experience these things are much categorically different than if it was the other way around. You see, our personal sins damage us in a way that's completely different to the damage we experience when someone sins against us. We experience kind of a self-alienation, a self-betrayal, a self-hatred to where we feel like we are our own worst enemy. And as a result, we suffer a unique and excruciating kind of internal loneliness because the one person who could understand us the most in our pain, the one person who could really help us process and understand what we're going through is the very person that we betrayed. We betrayed ourselves. We become our own worst enemy. This is what the great Christian philosopher Blaise Pascal was talking about when he once said this, quote, man has plainly gone astray and fallen from his true place without being able to find it again. He seeks it anxiously and unsuccessfully everywhere in impenetrable darkness. One of the things that you will experience as you get older is that there's going to be moments in your life where you're going to do something so dumb and so stupid that you are literally going to hate yourself and you want to just exile yourself. You don't want to be you. You don't want to be yourself. You want to get away from yourself. You don't want to be there for yourself, so to speak. And here's the thing. This kind of 
inner loneliness that is fueled by self-hatred, that is fueled by failure in our personal sins, is something that everyone experiences. This is not a unique Christian experience. This is a human kind experience. This is, a, this is an experience that everyone struggles with. This is why counseling and therapy is one of the most lucrative businesses in the world today. For those of you guys who are unsure of what you should major in in college and you're thinking about what is the best major to focus on to where I can make a lot of money, maybe you should consider therapy and counseling. Because even though we live in a time of lucrative luxuries and amazing technologies and wonderful amounts of wealth, people are still spending billions of dollars every year in counseling and therapy sessions because of this inner turmoil of intolerance of themselves or what one theologian has referred to as inner civil war. Listen to how one prominent psychologist down at Drew University uh, explains this growing phenomenon and problem in our society today. She says this, quote, modern society is involved in a massive flight from the self that is simply in self-destruction. How can we understand this situation, this problem, which presents itself variously as a loss of self, a divided self, the absurd self of Inesco's play, the amorphous beings in Beckett's play, the tropism in Natalie Surrett's novels, or the sense of meaninglessness in Tillich's phrase? We must start with the recognition that the situation and the problem, although exacerbated in the contemporary world, are not new, or rather they are both old and new. The paradoxical predicament that man must become who he is and therefore is a being who can be a problem to himself seems to have been acknowledged by all who have considered the question. Implicit in this understanding is the assumption that man has the capacity to choose, to decide, to will, although not necessarily consciously, not to become himself, to evade being who he is. It is this capacity, this choice, this unconscious will, the possibility of the self and its defeat, the loss of the self, that is the locus of the problem. Now, what in the world is she saying? She's basically saying this. In the world of psychology, which they have done for years, they've discovered that human beings are capable, as weird as it sounds, to alienate themselves from themselves to where they don't want to be who they are. They don't want to be there for themselves. I don't want to be there for me. You don't want to be there for yourself. We don't want to be for ourselves. There is a sense of where we cannot tolerate who we are to where we feel this inner abandonment against our own soul. We just can't stand to look at ourselves in the mirror. We just can't stand to deal with what is inside of us that we know is there, even if no one else can't. And so we face not loneliness because people outside of us don't want to be with us. We face an inner loneliness because we don't want to be with us. And that is so much more painful, so much more darker, so much more painful You see, when people don't want to be around us and we feel lonely, we can easily make the excuse, oh, well, they don't really know me. And we can almost make ourselves look like the victim to him by justifying our loneliness. But when we have moments where we're soberly aware of who we are, we can't hide the truth from ourselves. We know who we really are. I've had many situations where I try to counsel people where they're so depressed and they're so angry at themselves and they're filled with such self-hatred. And I'm like, Brother, sister, you, you got to understand that, that, that it's going to be okay. And like, no, pastor, you have no idea. You don't know what's going on inside of here. I know you don't. So you can't say that things are going to be better. You can't say that I have hope. You know what? They're right. 
I don't know what they know. They know the best. And so it seems as if they're hopeless. Because who could ever know them as they know them? Who could ever possibly know them as they know themselves? Ah, that is the question. Is there someone in the universe in reality that could know us better than we know ourselves? What about the one who created you? What about the one who knows you? What about the one who numbers the hair on your head? Anyone in here know how much numbers of hair that are on your head right now? God knows. Here we begin to see why God being with us is so amazing. Because he is able to come to us in a way to where we can't even come to ourselves. That is the good news of Christmas. When we find ourselves so bruised and broken and so hateful of ourselves to where we say, I can't stand me. Ourselves become hopeless. Because now we feel paradoxically, perpetually stuck in this inner loneliness. And the question is, will we always stay this way? Will we always be banished in this inner exile? The message of Christmas says, yes, there is someone who will be with you. In fact, someone who is better than you. Someone who knows you better than you know yourself. To where even where you can claim to other people you don't know me, you don't understand. You can't say that to God. To where whatever condemning voice you give to yourself, he has greater authority in his words to you about you. To where he can refute even what you say about yourself. We need someone like God to be with us. To ease the pain and sorrow of the ache of psychological loneliness. That is the message of Christmas. But then we come back to this question that we started off in the first point. How does he do that given that he's holy and that we're sinners? That he is righteous and we're unrighteous? How does he overcome the almost impenetrable barrier that scripture says is there because he's holy and we're not? How can he dwell among us to where we could be at peace with him among us, rather than cower in fear of judgment and destruction because of our sins. The answer leads me to my final point. The joy we now have because God is with us. Let's take a look, excuse me, let's take a look now at our other passage, the last chapter of Matthew 28. Starting in verse 18, it reads this. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are the last words of Jesus as is recorded in the gospel of Matthew. And what does Jesus say in verse 20? What does he say? Behold, I am with you always. Jesus is basically saying, behold, I am your Emmanuel always. Always I am with you. Question, how does Jesus, how does God do this? Verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You see that phrase, given to me? It's a very telling statement. What does it tell us? If authority was given to Jesus, right, what does that tell us? It tells us that this authority did not always belong to him. Because if it was given to him, that means at one point he didn't have it. Which means what? Jesus at one point did not have the authority to be with you. 
God did not always have the authority to be Emmanuel with you. God, in a sense, was not authorized. You could say his holiness did not authorize him to dwell among sinners like you and I. He didn't have the authority. And yet, here in Matthew 28, it tells us that Jesus must have done something. He must have done something that now gave him the authority, what he could not do before. Namely, dwell among us and be our Emmanuel. Question, what did Jesus do? What did he do that gave him now the authority to be our Emmanuel? The answer, the cross, right? The cross. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins as our substitute, he undermined the very thing that prevented him to be our Emmanuel. He fully paid for our sins, past, present, and future. He paid it all to where no longer the barrier of his holiness and our sins got in the way of him being among us because he paid for our sins. He covered over our sins. He made our sins null and void. And he suffered the ultimate alienation. Do you remember on the cross, the story of in the crucifixion, darkness is everywhere? What do you think that darkness represents? I think it represents the same darkness that Pascal was talking about. The inner alienation of being estranged because of sin. Now, of course, Jesus didn't die for his sins. He died for your sins. And he suffered what sin is. He suffered inner alienation, inner exile. Why? So that you would never, ever have to face it again. Folks, do you realize what this means? It means the next time you sin, and you will, maybe after this sermon is over, the next time you sin, you don't have to despair. You don't have to be weary You don't have to be filled with such self-hatred thinking that now you have to abandon yourself. No. Jesus already suffered all of that on the cross, which means when you do feel a self-alienation, a self-hatred, a self-exile, what you're really experiencing is what? You're experiencing a small relic of what Jesus actually endured for you on the cross. And in fact, I believe God intentionally leaves this relic of feeling of abandonment that you have to remind you of what you've been actually spared of because of what Jesus has done. You know, in the Old Testament, they celebrated the Passover. And one of the things they had to eat was bitter herbs. They were commanded to eat it. And bitter herbs are are not a pleasant thing to eat, right? It's suffering as you eat it. Why would God want them to eat something so disgusting? Because he wants them to suffer? No. He wants them to remember in a small way, in a small taste of what they were spared from. True bitterness of death and condemnation. When we suffer due to our own sins, this sense of self-hatred, it's kind of like the bitter herbs. It's not actual self-hatred. It's actually just a small taste of what you were actually spared from. So that when you feel that experience, you don't break down on yourself and hate on yourself and say, God, you've abandoned me too. And they just keep on sinning as a way of coping. No. That small taste of bitterness as a result of your sin is to remind you what Jesus fully took on for you. So you can walk in the shoes of your Savior. So that you can walk with realization of how much he loved you. So that when you sin, 
You don't stay down. You get back up with greater resolve, a fuller devotion, fuller obedience to him. That is what the gospel is supposed to do. My question to you is, do you understand this? When you fall into sin, do you go through a season of sinning more and more and more and more and more? Because you think, oh, it's hopeless. I was defeated. I just might as well just keep living stupidly and in sin. Or do you experience that mild taste of sorrow as a taste of what the sorrow of your Jesus has done for you? So that you can get back up with greater resolve, empowered by his love, to live more faithfully and more obedient and more joyfully. That is what the message of Christmas is here to tell you. Brothers and sisters, I know for some of you, you are just filled with such utter contempt for yourself. Maybe for some of you, you literally cannot look at yourself in the mirror. Maybe because you feel like you have failed yourself that has echoed in you failing other people, you feel this utter loneliness to where you think no one is willing to be with you, not even you. Remember Emmanuel. Remember God is with you. And remember that in the darkest moment where you feel so isolated, that it is only a momentary bitter taste of what you will never experience because Jesus tasted it all. For you. And all that awaits for you is joy and victory and thanksgiving. I want to challenge you. Think of those things and live more joyfully even after Christmas is over. Let's pray. Father, as we think more and more of what it means of you being Emmanuel to us, Lord, we are humbled by the fact that you are so merciful, that you're so good. The fact that you actually love us more than we could ever love ourselves tells us that you're the God that we should worship, not ourselves. And yet, Father, many of us are still stuck. Many of us are still living in inner exile from ourselves and from those around us. And we're just pulling up a facade through routine and through work, through school, to just try and be busy so that we wouldn't be aware of it. But God, as we come to this season of rest, this holiday season... Help us to face the bitterness of our brokenness so that we can push through that and see the joy of you being with us, being our Emmanuel. For if you are willing to be with us, Lord, how can we not be there for ourselves as well? How can we not live with joy and with thanksgiving? Give us the grace this season and as we bring 2015 to a close so that we can face 2016 and every year to come with joyfulness and with integrity, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.